0: Thank you, worship team. We've had a wonderful time of worship this morning, haven't we? Celebrated the Lord's uh, Supper and uh, just had a great time together. You know you're in Texas when one of the church announcements says, you're all invited to a summer shootout. Bring your guns. We're going to have fun. Uh, That was a first for me. I haven't been here long enough. We're going to talk a little bit about Sunday school. I hope you have not too many kids here. There are some. A Sunday school teacher was telling her class the story of the Good Samaritan in which a man was beaten, robbed, and left for dead. She described the situation in vivid detail so her students could catch the drama. Then she asked the class, if you saw a person lying on the roadside, all wounded and bleeding, what would you do? One thoughtful little girl broke the hushed silence. She said, I'd throw up. (laughs) A Sunday school teacher asked, Johnny, do you think Noah did a lot of fishing when he was on the ark? No, replied Johnny. How could he? With just two worms. (laughs) A Sunday school teacher said to her children, We've been learning about powerful kings and queens in the Bible times, but there is a higher power. Can anybody tell me what it is? And one kid blurted out, aces. (laughs) Not that good, huh? All right. Here's the last one. (laughs) A little boy was afraid of the dark. One night, his mother told him to go out to the back porch and bring her the broom. The little boy turned to his mother and said, Mama, I don't want to go out there. It's dark. The mother replied reassuringly at her son. You don't have to be afraid of the dark, she explained. Jesus is out there. He'll look after you and protect you. The little boy looked at his mother real hard and asked, Are you sure he's out there? Yes, I'm sure. He is everywhere. And he is always ready to help you when you need him, she said. The little boy thought about that for a minute. And then he went to the back door and cracked it a little. Peering into the darkness, he called, Jesus, if you're out there, would you please hand me the broom? (laughs) Well, we're going to study in our passage today that Jesus is out there, that Jesus is everywhere. Turn with me to Psalm 139. How great is our God? Psalm 139. And thirty-nine. This passage of scripture is one of the most beautiful, comprehensive, deeply theological, penetrating, soul-searching, and I think you'll agree with me, one of the most convicting passages in the Old Testament. David excludes everybody here. This is an intensely, intensely personal psalm. David is mentioned 37 times in this psalm. And God is mentioned as many times. This is between David and his Lord. This is between you and your Lord. It's between me and my Lord. Now, this psalm, obviously it could be terrifying if you look at it with the wrong perspective. Namely, I am desperately anxious to run away from God. I want to hide from God, but I cannot get away. And for some people like Adam, or Achan, or Ananias, this would be true. So depending on where you are this morning, whether you want to run away from God, whether you want to hide, you're ashamed of some things in your life, depending on your perspective, this psalm could be terrifying, or this psalm could be a delight. So let's look at the text. I want to share with you four truths about God that should result in our obeisance. Now, some of you are saying, what's that last word? I have to confess, I had to do some digging for this word. But this word obeisance means basically to submit, to pay homage, to bow down, in a sense, to worship God. That's what David does at the end of this psalm. And that's what I'm expecting we will do when we get to the end of this text four truths about God. First one, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing, verses 1 through 6. By the way, this this psalm, the original, obviously is in Hebrew, and it's Hebrew poetry. And the way this is laid out, it breaks up very nicely into four sections. Each section had uh, six verses. And so, And there's parallelisms in Hebrew poetry, and we'll see that in the text. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture. And so the first section, verses 1 through 6, talks about the omniscience of God. He is all-knowing. He knows everything there is to know about us. There's nothing we can hide from him. He just knows everything, period. The second truth is that God is omnipresent, That means he is all present, verses 7 through 12. There's no way to escape from him. There's no way you can go where you'll be without God, including that backyard for that kid. So, number three, God is omnipotent, which means he is all powerful, verses 13 through 18. We're going to see that God is the creator. He has all power. And he literally made us. We're going to look at that beautiful piece of scripture. And then the fourth truth is that God is all righteous. There is a sudden change in the tone in the psalm with verses 19 through 24. And David realizes the righteousness of God. And he hates wickedness. God responds to the righteous. And then the concluding verses, the last two verses of David's submission to God and his contriteness in his prayerful response. So let's look at that. The first one, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Look at verses one and two. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Anybody got up late this morning? God watches us. He knows when we sit down. When we rise up, and this searching is an absolute searching because it's God who's doing it. Thou hast searched me and known me, period. Absolute knowledge. And verse 3, thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. The word scrutinize in the Hebrew literally means to winnow. And there are people even today in different parts of the world that will winnow. I remember visiting a village in India one time and there was this lady and she was winnowing some grain. She had this like tray-like thing and had grain on it and she was just throwing it up like that in a, in a sort of a rhythm and the wind was just kind of gently blowing the chaff away and she was so good at it, she just kept doing it and, all, and when she was done, all the grain would just fall together, one little pile and the chaff was all gone. And so God has scrutinized, had winnowed David's path. So that means, when you talk about path, that's future. Because I haven't walked there yet. So God knows the future. He knows all that there is to know about us. He's, he's, he's gone before David and sort of prepared the way. There's nothing that we can hide from him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. We are naked and open before God. Every creature is laid bare before God and in his sight. He knows all the words that we speak. Verse 4, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou knowest it all. All the words we're going to speak, God knows it. You know, there's this computer in heaven. And there's one thing about this computer that's different from the ones we have. It has no delete key. So you can't erase anything. And didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter twelve that every word, every sinful word, every critical word, a negative word, good word with bad motives, someday we will give an account for every word. Matthew twelve, thirty four and thirty seven. The Bible makes a big deal about words. Why such a big deal about words? Words can cause permanent injury to people. Words can destroy character. Words can crush somebody's spirit. Words can mark you in the eyes of some as being an unworthy representative of the God of truth. Doesn't James say in his book, be swift to hear, but slow to speak. In fact, there's a whole chapter on it. So you're thinking, man, this is a lot about words. You know what? I'm just not going to say any words. All right, look at this. The second part of verse two. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Now what are you going to do? God even knows our thoughts. In fact, he knows our thoughts even before they're formed. In the, this is not really clear in the English, but in the Hebrew language, this does not mean that God, being far away, understands our thought, but that when our thought is far away, God understands it. There's a difference. So God knows even before the thoughts are formed in our minds. Of course, we know the problem is in the heart. Didn't Jesus say to guard your heart? Because it is out of evil heart that evil thoughts come. So this is what we need to guard. And David is so completely overwhelmed with this in verse 5. He says, thou dost enclose me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. He says, I'm trapped. I'm covered over. I'm totally hemmed in by God. But you know what? This is not a negative thing for David. This is positive. The wicked were always pursuing David. They were harassing David. And so he's glad that he's trapped in by God. He's glad that God has hemmed him in. We have an indication of the context. If you look at verses 19 and 20, where the wicked are harassing David. So he feels good that God has hemmed him in. Now that's a wonderful consideration, isn't it? If you know God as your savior and friend, that he's hemmed you in. And as David thinks about all this in verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. You know what my translation for this whole verse is? It's two words. Too much. Too much. This is too much. I can't understand this kind of God who knows everything about me. When I sit down, when I lay down, when I stand up, when I walk, he knows the words, he knows my thoughts. This is too much. I sincerely believe that David is moved by this. It it, it affects him. J.I. Packer says, This is momentous knowledge, unspeakable comfort that God is watching over me constantly. What an amazing God. You know, there's a danger if we take these scriptural truths and treat them as being theoretical, abstract, just head knowledge. It needs to move our beings It needs to move us as a person like it did for David. And listen to this. David, with the revelation he had, responds in this way. What about you and I? We have more revelation than David did. We have the entire Bible. We have the scriptures. We have the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament personalizes the omniscience in the person of Jesus Christ. This omniscience that David is talking about becomes a person in Jesus Christ. This wonderful knowledge became incarnate in a wonderful person who exhibited this knowledge on earth when he was dealing from person to person. Let's look at a few examples. John chapter 1. Here comes Nathanael. And Jesus said, Behold an Israelite, indeed in whom there is no guile, and Nathaniel goes up to the Lord. Hey, wait a minute. You don't know me. We've never met. And you know what Jesus says? I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. That did it. That did it for Nathanael. Unanswerable proof. Omniscience incarnate. I was miles away sitting under a fig tree. And he saw me. And Nathanael's response was, Thou art the Son of God, the King of Israel. He joined the disciples immediately. And he was from Nazareth, from where no good thing comes. But Nathaniel joined the disciples and followed him. How about John chapter 3, Nicodemus? Here's a religious guy. I mean, here's a guy who was the teacher of the law. And he goes to Jesus by night. Have you ever stopped to think why he went to Jesus by night? There's all kinds of explanations for this. But let me tell you, he was ashamed. This is a shame and honor issue. This is an Eastern cultural thing. He is the teacher. How can I, being the teacher, go and learn from someone else? And so he wanted to go so nobody else would see him. So he went at night. And he was face to face with omniscience incarnate. Jesus knew all about Nicodemus. And you know the conversation. And finally, uh, you know, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, wait a minute. And then he explains everything. And finally, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus was speechless after that. How about John chapter 4, the very next chapter, the woman at the well. Here's a woman at the well, and Jesus comes and asks for a drink. And men did not speak with women, especially strange women. And leave leave alone that. Here's a Jew asking a Samaritan. The Jews hated Samaritans. And Jesus says, give me a drink. She thought, this is kind of novel. And gave him a drink. And he goes on to tell all her past. She runs to the village. Come and see. Come and see this rabbi who knows all about me. Omniscience incarnate. And and then in John chapter 5, Jesus basically says, everything the Father knows he has shown me. Everything. That just covers everything. We don't need to proceed any further. Omniscience incarnate. This should be a life-transforming discovery, my friends. This is not just a philosophy. It's not just something theoretical. This is practical. And if this truth does not change, transform, convict, convert, comfort, reassure you, you've missed the point of this passage. Think about the millions of people who don't have this kind of a God. Millions of people all over the world today cannot say my God knows me personally, individually. You name it, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Shamanism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, you just name it. Nobody can say, my God knows me as an individual. He cares for me. Hallelujah. What a truth. What an amazing God. How great is our God. Not only is he... Omniscient, but he's also omnipresent. The second section, verses 7 through 12. God is omnipresent. He is all present. There is no way to escape from him. He is everywhere, including that backyard. You cannot hide from him. In fact, if you look at verse 10, look at verse 10, and I want you to read this in the sense of control, comfort, blessing, and provision. David says, even there thy hand will lead me, thy right hand will lay hold of me. Isn't it interesting? Thy hand will lead me. You know, we make plans. God directs the steps, even within those plans. And the right hand is a very specific concept in Old Testament literature. When you say the right hand of God, that means provision, blessing, authority, protection, supply. And he says, your, not just your hand, but your right hand will lead me. And notice in verse seven, the first part of this section, where can I go from the, th- thy spirit? The Holy Spirit is equated with deity here. This is a theological truth. The Holy Spirit is God because he says, where can I go from thy presence? Where can I go from thy spirit? God's spirit. Now let's just assume, like the psalmist does, that there are ways to escape from God. Let's look at some of the possibilities, you know, where can I go? Alright, let's look at them for verse 8 on, onwards, first one is heaven. You're not going to go to heaven to run away from God, I mean, that's kind of dumb, alright? That's obvious, least possible. Next one, Sheol. How about Sheol? The depths of the earth. The King James translated as hell. He says, even if I go to hell, even if I go to the bottomless part of the earth, the place of the dead. In fact, Revelation chapter 14 says that the wicked will be tormented night and day in the presence of the Lamb. Even there, you cannot escape the presence of God. The psalmist is actually making a comparison between as far as heaven and as far as deep down in the depths of the earth. There's no place I can go to hide from you. How about the next possibility? The wings of the dawn in verse 9. If I take the wings of the dawn, you know what that is? That is the rays of light. That is the speed of light. If I take the speed of light, the wings of the dawn, the ultimate measuring stick of astronomers, Einstein said nothing will go faster than the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. By the way, angels can beat that. But if I take the speed of light and go as fast as I can, as far as I can, even there you're going to be there. If I go to the remotest part of the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will take hold of me. You know what? Don't you think uh, Jonah should have checked this out before he bought his ticket? I mean, there's a perfect example that you cannot run away physically and geographically from God. God said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go east. Jonah said, I'm going west. Guess what? He ended up going east. He ended up going exactly where God wanted him to go. The reluctant prophet, thoroughly chastened by his discovery of God's omnipresence. You know, he should have read Amos chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, where God speaks through the prophet Amos and said, even if you flee to the bottom of the sea, I will send my serpent to bite you. One more possibility, darkness. Verses 11 and 12 If I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me And the light around me will be like night Even the darkness is not dark to thee And the night is as bright as the day Darkness and light are alike to thee Isn't that amazing? It makes no difference my friend You want to hide from God at night? You want to hide from God at night? Forget it It ain't night for God It's light It's light you want to be in your room? You want to shut the door? You want to pull the curtains? You want to turn off the lights? God sees everything. Isn't it amazing that wicked people, when they want to do evil deeds, what's the first thing they think of doing it? Is under the cover of darkness. Where they think they will not be seen. They may not be seen by man. But there is a higher person who sees You cannot run from God, even in darkness. Imagine the futility of running away from someone into darkness who is the light of the world. Don't try it. Well, just in case, in some fleeting moment of weakness, somebody here thought that God doesn't know all about me, that he doesn't weigh and measure every word I speak, that he doesn't analyze every thought I think, that he doesn't see me wherever I am, night or day, light or darkness, think again and read Psalm 139. I get a message from this, and I hope you do too. You know what the message is? Get acquainted with this God. Get acquainted with this God and surrender unconditionally. If there's anybody here, by the way, who's never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, omniscience incarnate, the God that David is talking about was made incarnate in the person of the Lord Jesus. He reveals God to us. And if there's anybody here who has never put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus... I would encourage you to do it today. Send me an email, talk to me. I'd love to come and help you through the scriptures and lead you into faith in Christ. Get acquainted with this God. What an awesome, awesome God. Not only is he omniscient, not only is he omnipresent, but he's omnipotent. And what does that mean? That means he's all powerful. Look at verses 13 through 18. He has created us. One of the most marvelous passages in the Bible that talks about God's relationship to the human structure. Look at verse 13. For thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. The first part of the verse in 13, I believe, talks about the psychological aspects of man. Because it says inward parts, the most inner part of the body, the inner self. And the Hebrews, the only way they could describe it is to call it kidneys. That's what it says in the Hebrew, kidneys. But what they meant was right in there. And the second part of verse 13, thou dost weave me in my mother's womb is talking about the physical aspect of man. Isn't it amazing? He has weaved us. You know what the, the, the word in the original text for weave in Hebrew is embroider. You ever seen people doing embroidery? It's intricate and he's weaves. And it's referring to the veins in our body, the arteries in our body, the nervous system. Each one of us has been created by God and he has intricately woven all these things to make us to who we are. Do you know that there is only one You. Some of you are saying, praise God. Some of you are looking around, it's good, there's no one else, there's not a double for that person there. But there's only one you. Think about it. Your face, your features, your voice, your style, your background, your characteristics, your peculiarities, your abilities, your smile, your handshake, your viewpoints, your body, your tastes, your likes, your dislikes, your expressions. Everything about you is found only in one individual on this entire planet. And it's you. You know, this just blows me away when I look at my hands. These fingerprints. I think the FBI needs to get down on their knees and thank God for this. <laughs> I mean, every person has his own fingerprint. Every person, past, present, and future. What is it? Billions of people and everyone different. Different. Oh, we have been skillfully made. He has weaved us together. Job says the same thing in the passage that was read earlier. He has knit us together and put the bones together. It's amazing. Look at verse verse 14. I will give thanks to thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and my soul knows it very well. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret. You know what the frame is? That's the skeleton you know what the smallest bones in the body are? Where are the smallest bones in the body? Right here in the ear. God put it together. Skillfully. He put it together. And he skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, which is the womb of the woman. And then eyes have seen my unformed substance. I mean, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me share a few things about the human body with you. This is absolutely amazing. And if this doesn't make you worship God, I don't know what else will. But here's what God has created in us and our bodies skillfully put together. A pair of lungs that can pump 2,400 gallons of air every day. A skin so complex that every square inch has 35,000 pores that are fantastically delicate and sensitive to changes in humidity and temperature and adjust accordingly. The most complex system in our body is the nervous system. There are billions of neurons in the brain that receive and analyze and store information about internal and external conditions. Ten million brain cells require more electrical energy to operate than you will find generated in Niagara Falls. How about the heart, as big as a fist? the shape of a pear, an amazing organ. Do you know that the heart beats approximately 100,000 times every day of your life, pumping 2,000 gallons of blood? They just told us that the uh, oldest man just died, 113 years old. Can you imagine that? And the, the vessels in our body, if they were laid down end to end, It would be 60,000 miles. Twice around this earth or more. Isn't it amazing what God has created? There's a book here that I was reading in preparation for this message by Dr. Paul Brand, fearfully and wonderfully made. Dr. Paul Brand was a missionary in India, a medical missionary, and he worked with lepers. He was fascinated by the disease of leprosy, so he studied the skin. And he studied the nervous system. And his findings are absolutely amazing. He was a pioneer in that field. And he ties it into Psalm 139. And he says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at verse 16. And I want you to think about DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, genetic engineering, programming, blueprints, genome mapping, and templates. As I read this, uh, verse 16, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book they were written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that your days did not begin at birth? Did you know that God's concern for you did not begin at birth? That you were somebody from the moment of conception. It's absolutely amazing. Here's some things about the the fascinating world of the unborn. Got this from the Reader's Digest. It says, at three weeks, the heart begins to beat. Actually, at three weeks is when we detect it. Three weeks. At four weeks, the fetus is one quarter inch. Isn't that amazing? And um, And the head and the eyes are distinguishable at that stage. In seven weeks, the brain functions are detected. In eight weeks, the limbs, the fingers, the fingerprints, and toes are formed. At nine weeks, the fetus uses hands to grasp and a mouth to swallow. At 13 weeks, there is a fully formed human embryo and only growth and develop from here on. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet it says in verse 16, unformed substance. In other words, God knew us even before we had an embryo to call our own. God knew us. What an amazing God is this. And it just breaks my heart when I think about what is happening in this country. The tragedy of abortion. Can you imagine the implications for abortion from this passage? It is the greatest ongoing tragedy that this generation or any generation has ever faced. Since 1972, there have been over 41 million abortions performed in America. That's more than 1.3 million abortions every year. And they are often done after the first trimester. Late-term abortions and partial birth abortions are no longer rare. 5,000 times a year it takes place in this country, a a procedure that takes the life of a viable child. After the legs have been delivered, the abortionist kills the infant by puncturing the skull and sucking out the baby's brains. God, have mercy. God, forgive us. God knew us when we were as an unformed substance. He knew us. Notice that even before we were born, our days were numbered. David says in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Which means from the moment we are born, we actually begin to die. Our days are numbered. We are all on our way to one day dying. And you know what? If you have placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that should not be a concern for you. Because God has already numbered our days. It's fascinating. You know, this is one appointment that we will not be late for. In fact, you won't even be early for this appointment. You'll be on time. Because our days are numbered. Are you ready? I'm ready. God can call us anytime. And we're ready to go. You see, this... This is an amazing, amazing God. No wonder he says in verse 17 and 18, he says, how precious are thy thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with thee. God has so many thoughts about us. He says, I just cannot even count them. You know, this is a personal God. The God we worship is a personal God. He loves us. This to the point where he sent his son to die for us. He loves us so much, he created us. He made us just exactly like we are. All of us have personalities, but they're from God. God's made us the way we are. And this personal God, our God is not an idol we put on a shelf in some room of the house as millions of people do in the country of India. But this is a personal God. Not only is he omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, but he's all righteous. There is a sudden change in the text right here in verse 19. All of a sudden, the tone changes. And David says, Oh, that thou wouldst slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. They that speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies, they take that name in vain. I hate those who hate thee. Do I not hate those who hate thee? Do I not loathe those? What, What happens here? How come all of a sudden, you know, he's talking about God's omniscience, omnipresence, And he talks about God being powerful, being a creator. And all of a sudden, boom, I hate those wicked people. I know what happened. I think he came to the realization. All of a sudden, he came to the realization. God is so righteous. God is so holy. God hates sin. God is so awesome. And we are precious in his sight for how he created us and how much he's involved with us and how he knows all about us. And those wicked people, I hate them. By the way, the word hate, as I looked at that in the original text, it doesn't quite mean the way we use the English word hate. It literally means rejection. I reject those people. I don't want to have any association with them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And he realizes then, I think he probably said to himself, he says, yeah, but what about me? I hate those wicked people and I hate what they're doing. What about me? What about me? Do I have sin in my heart? This God is so holy. This God is so righteous. I can't believe how he knows everything about me. I can't believe how he created me. Do I have sin in my heart? I'm unworthy. Look inside my heart. Look with me at the last two verses. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. I'm concerned. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And the idea there The hurtful way, it means offensive way, literally a way of pain. Am I causing any pain by my wrongdoing? Oh God, am I causing any hurt to you because of the way I live my life? I want you to forgive me, search my heart. He says, lead me in the everlasting way. He's so convinced that God's searching is going to yield an evidence of his loyalty, which would result in David having everlasting life. Lead me in the way everlasting. And what a way to end this passage and say, search me, O God. How's your heart today? How are you today? Now that you understand who this God is, let's take a few minutes and let's search our hearts as we conclude this service. I've asked Tim to, to, uh, to sing a song as we, uh, as we uh, think about these thoughts and, and uh, concentrate on on where you are in your walk with God. What a wonderful, what an awesome God we serve. Oh, it can be a delight for you if you're walking with him. And as they sing, let's keep our eyes closed, our heads bowed, and let's ask God to search our hearts. And and let's pray that we present him a heart that's clean and pure. It's a time to confess your sins, your weaknesses, your shortcomings, but say, Lord, search me. Lead me in the way everlasting. me, tell me who, can purify me, tell me who, still loves me deeply more than I understand only you more than I understand only you who am I? Who am I? Who am I Lord? that you should even know my name God we're just so humbled today we just fall prostrate before you Father you are such an awesome God Lord at this time of uncertainty at the time of just a, a horrendous situation with immorality and with the rejection of God Lord, you're the only one we can look to. You're the only one from whom we can get strength and hope. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you that you know all of our days, what a comfort that is. Oh God, we worship you, only you. not a him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Thank you all. God bless you. Have a great week.